Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. The rest of you, I'm going to invite to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. And I want to thank Pastor Andrew for preaching for me last week. Let's give him a hand. I heard his sermon. He did a great job. Um, it was actually kind of funny because I was in Tennessee last week preaching, and I preached the same text as Andrew, and he sent me his manuscript, and I listened to it, and I told him this week, I said, man, you did a lot better job than I did. So um, he did a great job uh, preaching last week, and I appreciate that. It's, it's good to be back. Luke chapter 9. Well, the famous day was July 20th, 1969. Some of you remember that date. I do not because I was not born yet. But July 20th, 1969 was that day when the Apollo 11 landed on the surface of the moon. It was that mission, that lunar landing, commanded by Neil Armstrong, Michael Collins, and Buzz Aldrin. As they got out of the spacecraft and they were on the, the sea of tranquility, they became the first humans to ever walk on the moon. It was a wonderful mission because nine years earlier, President JFK wanted us as Americans to win the space race against the Soviets, the Russians. And so it was a major victory, a major mission for the United States. Now we can probably think of all the great missions that have happened in the history of the world. We think of that mission on D-Day, Back in 1944, when the Allied forces stormed the Normandy coast and, and basically signaled the end of World War II, the mission of the Allied forces. You can think of the mission of Lewis and Clark that, that explored most of the United States and made their way all the way over to the Pacific coast. You can think of the mission, 1492, when Columbus sailed the ocean blue, blue these great missions that have launched us into the future and have done great things to advance our culture and advance history and all these great missions. We tend to resonate with a mission, whether it's a mission in your family, whether it's a mission at your job to accomplish something. Some of you have a mission for your favorite sports team to accomplish this year. It's all about mission. We hear it all the time, mission. But I'm going to ask a very fundamental question this morning that we need to ask frequently as Emmanuel Baptist Church, and that's this. What is our mission? What fundamentally is our mission as a church? What are we called to do? We transition into Luke chapter 9, which begins a new section in Jesus' ministry. And in this passage of Scripture, Jesus sends out his apostles on a mission. And their mission serves as a blueprint for our mission as a church family. So let's read together Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out 
to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed. Because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead. By some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. And Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. Now in this passage of scripture, we see four major themes or teachings or truths about what Jesus is calling the disciples to do. And so let's explore these together. Here is the first. The disciples were sent out on a very specific mission. The disciples were sent out on a very specific mission. It says here in verse 1, Jesus called the twelve together. He convened them together. And then in verse 2, he sent them out. This is where we get our word apostle. It's the Greek word apostello. In a sense, Jesus is making these disciples now apostles in that he is sending them out on a very specific mission. Now up to this point in the Gospel of Luke, the disciples were merely observing Jesus' ministry. They were watching Jesus teach. They were watching Jesus preach. They were watching him heal. They were watching him cast out demons, watching him perform miracles. They were merely watching Jesus do all of the ministry. But at this point, Jesus sends them out on their own, on a mission. And he gives them two tasks, a twofold mission. Preach the kingdom of the gospel or the gospel of the kingdom. And number two, heal. Preach and heal. Now the primary aspect of their mission was to preach. Notice that he says there in verse 2, he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God. Proclaim. That word proclaim is often used in Jesus' ministry. It means to, to herald, to announce with authority, to go out with boldness, to be very public in your proclamation. And they are to announce with authority, to preach the gospel of the kingdom. Now, it's very interesting. Jesus says, go preach the gospel of the kingdom. But if you look at verse 6, they departed and went through the villages preaching the gospel. So which are they supposed to do? Are they supposed to preach the kingdom of God or are they supposed to preach the good news or the gospel? And the question is both. They're to announce the good news of the kingdom. Now let's ask a question. Why is it good news? 
Why is the message of Jesus good news? It's good news because Jesus has come as the Messiah. He has not yet died on the cross and risen again. But for us, the message is good news because Jesus has died on the cross. He shed his blood for our sins and he's risen again and he gives us forgiveness of sins. He gives us eternal life. This is good news. We can't contribute to this. All we can do is receive what Christ has done for us in the good news. So they're to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. Jesus' task was to do that himself. In Luke 4, 43, he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Okay, so let's ask a question. What's the kingdom? What is the kingdom of God? Well, we often think of kingdoms in in terms of fences or in borders or in walls or in capitals or in castles or buildings. We, We think in geographical terms about kingdoms. But God's kingdom is his rule and his reign in the hearts of his people and really his rule and reign wherever God chooses to rule. Jesus, when he's on trial before Pilate in John 18, 36, Jesus answered Pilate and said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. It's not a worldly kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. And the Bible speaks of three aspects of the kingdom of God. There's a, there's a A present reality in the sense that when Jesus came on the scene, he brought the kingdom of God in the first coming of Christ. In Matthew 4, 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When Jesus came, he brought the kingdom because he's the king of the kingdom. But there's a sense in which the kingdom of God, even though Jesus has risen and gone back up to heaven, it's a present reality. It was read earlier. In our call to worship, Hebrews 12, 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. We're receiving a kingdom right now that can't be shaken. But yet, there's a future aspect to the kingdom. There's an already not yet. Jesus will come one day and establish his kingdom forever. Revelation eleven fifteen, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That's where we get the hallelujah chorus. Handel's Messiah. The future. So the kingdom is at hand when Jesus came. The kingdom is now, and the kingdom will come. We often use this terminology. We need to be a kingdom-minded people. We need to be about building the kingdom. We need to be about advancing the kingdom. It's all about the kingdom. And we need to be very careful how we speak about the kingdom of God. If we're not careful, we can think that the kingdom of God is something that we build or something that we advance. There's only two ways in which the kingdom of God is spoken about in the Bible. It's something that we preach and it's something that we receive or something we inherit. We don't build the kingdom of God. That's God's job. God builds his kingdom. We're to preach it. We're to tell people the king is here. And we're to receive it. 
But we don't advance the kingdom. We don't build the kingdom. That puts us in charge as opposed to the king being in charge. And that's why it's good news. The good news of the kingdom is we can't do anything to contribute to the kingdom because it's all been accomplished by Jesus as the king. By virtue of his death, burial, and resurrection, his power, his glory, he's giving us the kingdom. So the disciples, now apostles, are sent out on a very specific mission. A mission to preach the gospel of the kingdom. So let me give it to you in a sentence. What is the gospel of the kingdom? The gospel of the kingdom is the good news of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus as the sovereign king and the command for all people to repent and believe in him as their king. It's the good news that Jesus has died on the cross. He's risen again. He's the king. He's accomplished it all through his death, burial, and resurrection. And he commands us to repent and believe in him as king so that we can receive that eternal life and that forgiveness. And we can receive the kingdom of God. So, the first aspect of their mission is to preach, to proclaim, to announce the good news of the kingdom. But the second aspect is to heal. They were to go out and heal. Look at verse 2 again. He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Go to verse 6. They departed. They went through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Preaching and healing. Healing was to accompany the preaching as confirmation of what the message was. The disciples were to go out and, and to, to do works of healing, to do miracles, to do ministry, to, to minister to those who were primarily sick and in need. So the very first thing we see are the disciples slash apostles are sent out on a very specific mission. What's the mission? To preach the gospel of the kingdom and to heal. What's the second thing we see in this passage of Scripture? The second thing we see is that the disciples were empowered to encounter spiritual warfare. The disciples were empowered to encounter spiritual warfare. Jesus knew that if he was going to send the disciples out on their own, they would be helpless without power. If they went in their own resources, if they went in their own ingenuity, if they went in their own strength, they would be toast. Now, up to this point in the Gospel of Luke, we've been in Luke for many months now. Jesus himself has encountered demonic opposition. You remember all the way back to Luke chapter 4, Jesus was encountered by the devil himself in the wilderness for 40 days. Later on in chapter 4, Jesus heals the man that was demon-possessed in the synagogue. And you remember from a few weeks ago, Jesus encounters the man with the legion of demons when the pigs go flying off the cliff. So there's been a lot of demonic activity with Jesus himself. So why would we think that it would be any different if his disciples were sent out on a mission? They're going to encounter demonic opposition the way that Jesus himself encountered it. And how is the kingdom of darkness going to feel when the kingdom of God comes in its territory? The devil and his minions are not going to like the message of the good news of the gospel of the kingdom because they want people to remain in darkness. So what does Jesus give them? Look at verse 1. He called the 12 together and gave them power 
and authority over all demons. He gave them power and authority over demonic forces. Because Jesus knew they were going to face demonic opposition. If he faced it, they're going to face it. Think about Jesus himself was empowered by the Holy Spirit for ministry. After he was tempted in the wilderness and he came out and before he preached that first sermon in the Nazareth synagogue, we find these words in Luke chapter 4, verses 14 and 15. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. If Jesus needed the power and authority of the Holy Spirit to do his ministry, how much more the apostles? So Jesus gives them power and authority over all demonic forces because they were going to face demonic opposition. So number one, they're sent on a very specific mission to preach and to heal. Number two, they needed empowering. They needed authority. But number three, the disciples needed to depend totally on God's provision. How did Jesus tell them to do their ministry? Travel light. Don't take a lot of stuff with you. He says there in verse 3, take nothing for your journey. No staff, no bag, no bread. No, don't take any money. Don't have two tunics, just have one. If you enter a house, stay there. In other words, you're going to go out, disciples, and you're going to be at the mercy of those that are going to give you hospitality. Which means that as you go from house to house, you're going to have to depend totally upon me for your food, for your clothing, for your shelter. You've got to be totally dependent upon my resources, disciples. Don't carry all this stuff with you. Don't trust in what you can bring. Go out, travel light, and trust in my provision. And be grateful when you enter a house and they feed you and they clothe you. Stay there. Stay there and honor that house that's received you. In other words, don't get so antsy to go looking for a better gig down the street. Maybe the person in the village next door has better accommodations. No, stay there, receive what they give you, be thankful for the hospitality because I'm providing for your needs. So they needed to, number one, go out on a very specific mission to preach and to heal. Number two, they needed the power of the Holy Spirit to encounter this demonic opposition. And number three, they needed to totally rely upon Jesus every step of the way. Not rely upon their own resources, but upon his provision. But then the fourth thing we see, the disciples encountered various responses to their message. We know by experience ourselves that not everybody will receive the good news of the gospel of the kingdom. Not everybody gets saved. So there's three responses that the disciples encounter. Number one, a positive response. We assume that those people that received them into their homes received the message, the good news of the kingdom. There was the positive receiving of Jesus as the king. There were those that we assume trusted Christ for salvation. They received the message of the apostles. It was positive. But we see the second response in verse 5. Whenever they do not receive you, when you leave the town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. There were those that did not receive the message. They rejected the king of the kingdom. And what were the disciples to do? Shake the dust off their feet as a testimony against them. Now, what does this mean to shake the dust off their feet? What in the world is this? Okay, let me give you some background here. 
If you were a Jewish person and you left the promised land, you left Israel, and you went out into the pagan Gentile world, you went out into one of the Canaanite areas, when you came back into Israel, you would shake the dust off your feet so you wouldn't bring in any of the contaminated soil from the pagan nations back into Israel. You'd shake the dust off your feet so that you get all the evil, all the paganism off you so that you, when you got back on holy land, you were back in Israel. So what are the disciples doing here to the fellow Jewish people who rejected their Messiah? Basically, the disciples are saying, listen, you're worse than the Gentile pagans. You've rejected your Messiah. I'm shaking my feet off and treating you in a rebuke as if you are a pagan Gentile because you've rejected your Messiah. It was a strong symbolic rebuke against those that rejected the king of the kingdom. They were acting just like the pagan Gentiles that rejected God. So the first response is positive. They receive the message of the kingdom. The second response is negative. They reject. There's a shaking off of the feet as a testimony against them. But then we see a third response. And you, make, you wonder, why is, chap, why is verses 7 through 9 here? We find this information about Herod the Tetrarch. Obviously, the, the ministry of Jesus and his disciples was getting very popular, very well known. Verse 7, Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening. He was perplexed. What's going on here? I, I beheaded John. By this time, John's been beheaded. Remember, the last time we heard about John, he was in prison. By now, he's been beheaded by Herod, and Herod's confused. He's, he's wondering, okay, I beheaded John. Some are saying it's John come back to life. How can that be? Some people are saying it's Elijah. Some people are saying it's a prophet. Who is this Jesus dude? I want to meet him. I'm paraphrasing what Herod probably said. But notice what he says there at the end of verse 9. He sought to see him. What we see in Herod, the third response, is curiosity. He's curious. I want to know more. I haven't accepted Jesus. I haven't rejected Jesus. I just want to know more. Who is this guy? And that's a great thing, curiosity. If somebody is a skeptic and they want information, they want more, they're not closed to Jesus, they want to get more information, we should welcome that. We should encourage them. We should answer their questions. We should love them and try to, try to help them. Curiosity is a great thing because it means that they want to know more. But for Herod, sadly, his curiosity went nowhere. You read the rest of the story of Herod, he's instrumental in actually the crucifixion of Jesus along with Pilate. There's a warning here about curiosity. If you wait around too long, you may not be guaranteed tomorrow. God is patient, God is kind, but don't let your curiosity turn into this prolonged, prolonged, I'm going to be curious but never trust in Christ. Hebrews 3, 7 through 8 says this, the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. Today, Herod, you can, you can be curious, you can ask questions, but there comes a point where you, you better do something with Jesus because you may not have tomorrow, today. Hebrews 9, 27, just as it's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. After you die, it's too late. Now, speaking of somebody that didn't want to wait, or wanted to wait, St. Augustine if you read his confessions, and I encourage all of you, it's pretty easy to read. It's just, it's his autobiography of his, his salvation experience, how he came to the Lord. It's his testimony. And so this was back in the 400s. He was a lustful young man. 
I mean, he was addicted to sex. He had prostitutes. And he talks about when he was around 19 years old, he was, he was really struggling with sexual temptation. And he wrote this in his confessions about how he was towards God. I'm, I'm going to give you a little quote here from Augustine. He said, I was an unhappy young man, wretched as a teenager, when I prayed to you, God, for sexual purity. And I said to the Lord, Grant me sexual purity and self-control, but not yet. I was afraid you would hear my prayer quickly and that you might too quickly save me from my slavery to lust, which I preferred to indulge rather than to flee. Notice what Augustine says. I hated being addicted to sex. Lord, please deliver me from it, but not yet. Let me enjoy it a little bit longer. God may not let you enjoy it a little bit longer, maybe too late. That's what it was with Herod. The curiosity led nowhere. Now, let's think about this passage of Scripture. These were the apostles. Eyewitnesses to Jesus, commissioned by Jesus, lived three years with Jesus. An unrepeatable group of men <clears throat> that were sent out on a mission. Yet, their mission serves as a blueprint for our mission as a church. So let's ask the question again that I asked at the beginning. What is our mission? You don't have to go to a fancy book to find it. You don't have to go to a conference. You don't have to go scratching your head. Jesus gave it to us very plain and clear. It's called the Great Commission. Okay, Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Big picture, we're called to go into all the world and make disciples. But let's look at this passage of Scripture here, and let's look at this blueprint of what these disciples did, and let's ask the question, okay, what are we to do? If we're to emulate the disciples, if we're to, to fulfill the mission that Christ has given us as a church, what are we to do? So, so as Emmanuel Baptist Church, what is our mission? What are we called to do? Well, first, we too must faithfully preach the gospel of the kingdom. Our first priority as a church is to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. To hold fast to the scriptures and declare with authority and with boldness the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as king and the command for all people to repent and believe in him as their king so that they may have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. It is the first order of business of our church is to preach the gospel of the kingdom. J.C. Ryle has said this, a sound preaching ministry is absolutely essential to the health and prosperity of a church. The pulpit is the place where the chief victories of the gospel have always been won. Listen to this. No church has ever done much for the advancement of true Christianity in which the pulpit's been neglected. We will not neglect from this pulpit the proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom for the glory of Christ. 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 4. 
Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who's to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his coming, preach your opinions. Is that what it says? Preach political speeches. Preach little stories. Preach fireside chats. Preach what people want to hear. What does it say? Preach the, you say it out loud, the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming, and I'm saying it's already here, when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. If we don't preach faithfully, the scriptures and the gospel of the kingdom, we are not doing what God's called us to do as a church. Primary preaching. Greg Allison said this. He's a professor at Southern Seminary. The church must proclaim clearly, urgently, persuasively the word of God without confusion, without change, without compromise as its first order of business. And I say amen to that. So the first thing we do as a church is we proclaim with authority, without compromise, without embarrassment, the, the full counsel of God's word, and especially the gospel of the kingdom. But secondly, secondly, we too should meet the physical and spiritual needs of each other as a church family. Don't miss the forest for the trees. What, were the, what was the two-task Assignment for the disciples to preach, but also what to do secondly? Heal. Now, there's a little bit of difference between being empowered by Jesus to go out and heal and maybe what we're, we're called to do. But what I'm talking about here is that we need to be about ministering to the needs of other people. Whether that's a physical need, an emotional need, a spiritual need, we need to be about ministering, about, about showing mercy, about coming alongside people to minister to them. And what does this mean practically? It means everything from visiting the sick, feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, visiting those in prison, welcoming the strangers, showing hospitality to the homeless, meeting the needs in our church family. And I've been convicted of something lately as a pastor. Okay, this, this is me talking about a weakness in my own leadership in this church. Sometimes we can get out of balance in our ministry. It's not an either or, it's a both and. Yes, preaching is primarily important. But we could preach all day till we're blue in the face, but if we're not meeting each other's needs and ministering to each other and helping and encouraging and being in each other's lives, we're not fulfilling what God's called us to do as a church. We can get way out of balance sometimes in having a preaching ministry, which is important. But the disciples had a preaching ministry, and they had a healing ministry. I want you to think about it this way. When you think about a warfare, there's the air war, and there's the ground war. The air war is the pulpit. This is where I rally all the troops together. We, we, we hear from God's word. We've got the air war. We're, we're, we're fighting Satan and, and we're, we're taking ground. And this is kind of the all hands on deck are hearing it from the air. But then there's the ground war. The ground war is where the, the ministry takes place in the trenches. 
I can't be down every place in the ground. I can stand here and give you the message, but unless we're all down in the trenches, meeting each other's needs and coming along each other and, and helping each other and encouraging one another and ministering to one another, we're not doing what God's called us to do. Listen to 1 John 3, 17 through 18. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Talk is cheap when it comes to love. We need to show it in action. We need to be about preaching and about ministering. That's always what the church has been about. A preaching ministry, a, a, healing, and teach, a healing and ministering and, and a mercy ministry. So, number one, preaching. Vitally important. We too must preach with authority. Number two, but we also need to be about ministering and helping each other and encouraging one another and meeting each other's needs, whether that's emotional, physical, spiritual, meeting needs. Third, we too need the power of the Spirit when we encounter spiritual warfare. Think about it this way. If a church gets serious about proclaiming the full counsel of God's word, when a church gets serious about um, invading the territories of darkness with the gospel of light, when a church gets serious about meeting each other's needs, is Satan going to sit back and want that to happen? No. He's going to be right in the thick of it, and he's going to want to attack. And so just like those apostles needed authority and power and spiritual um, empowerment over the powers of darkness we need that today too because we have a real enemy ephesians 6 12 says this we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers against the authorities against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places spiritual warfare is real the devil is real and we too need power to engage in these spiritual attacks when they come our way. James 4, 7. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Put on the full armor of God. Stand. 1 Peter 5, 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So what's our mission as a church? Number one, to preach the gospel of the kingdom with boldness and faithfulness and authority. What's the second mission of our church? To minister and meet needs and have mercy and compassion and to be getting in the trenches and helping each other and loving one another. What's the third thing we need to do as a church? We need the power of the Holy Spirit as we engage in spiritual warfare. But what's the fourth thing that we need? What's the fourth thing we're to do? We too must be content and dependent upon the Lord for everything. We must be content and dependent upon the Lord for everything. Now, for the disciples, what was it in their context? They were to travel light. Okay. Jesus is not telling us to go out and not take clothing or not take money or not take a, take a purse. That, that was contextual for them. But the principle is the same. The principle is the same. Are we, as a church dependent upon God for everything? Or do we chart out in our own strength, in our own um, ingenuity, in our own cleverness? Are we dependent? 
This was read also earlier, Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. As a church, are we dependent on Jesus? You know, these Chinese pastors came to America many years back, and these Americans took them around to all these mega churches and to all this Christian ministry and showed them around America. And, you know, and then at the end of it, the Americans were like, aren't these Chinese so impressed with all us American, you know, all the ministries and churches? And so they asked the Chinese pastors, so what do you think? What do you think about America? And here's what their answer. We're surprised how much you can do without God. There's a lot of things we can do without God. And probably do them pretty successful because we're pretty talented. We, we have the resources. We have ingenuity. We have all these things. But if we rely upon those things as opposed to the Lord, we're not totally trusting Him for everything. And it leads to contentment. You see, the disciples would be content. How content are we in God's provision? You know, Paul said in Philippians 4, 11 through 13, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I'm to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Okay, so let's recap these four aspects of what we're to be about as a church. We're asking the question, Emmanuel Baptist Church, what are we to be about? What, what's our mission? What are, we, what, what are we supposed to be doing? Number one, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, the full authority of God's word with power and authority, a preaching ministry. Number two, a ministry. Meeting the physical and spiritual needs of one another through love and mercy and encouragement. Number three, we need the power of the Holy Spirit as we encounter spiritual warfare. Number four, we need to depend upon the Lord for everything. His provision, His resources. And we need to remember, like the disciples, when we carry out the mission, we'll see various responses. Praise the Lord, there'll be those times where people trust Christ for salvation and they get saved and they get baptized and they become part of the church. We, we, we say, praise the Lord, hallelujah. We love that. We want to see that. We want to see people get saved, come to faith. We want to see a positive response to the gospel. But other times we're going to see rejection. We're going to see people hate our message. We're going to see people that will walk away and we, we mourn over that. We're discouraged over that at times. Some people will be curious. I want to know more. Like Herod. We should be encouraged by that. We should love them and answer their questions and help them and, and invite them and pray for them and, and do whatever we can to give them the information of the gospel. But here's the thing we need to remember. <laughs> Even the disciples who were sent out specifically by Jesus, empowered by him, faced all types of responses. They had rejection. And if they had rejection, we'll have rejection. So here's the thing. The disciples were called to go, be obedient, and leave the results up to God. We're called to go and be obedient and leave the results up to God. 
2 Corinthians, I mean, sorry, 1 Corinthians 3, 7 says this, So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. You know, for some of you here today, you may have never for the very first time submitted yourself to the king of the kingdom. You're here today, and you do not have a relationship with Christ alone as your Savior. You've never actually ever repented of your sins. You've never believed in him as your Lord. You've never confessed your need for a Savior. Today is the day of salvation. I would encourage you to say yes to the King. 2 Corinthians 6.2 says this, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. If you're here today and you've never trusted Christ, today is the day. Don't harden your heart. Say yes to the king of the kingdom. For others of you that call Emmanuel Baptist your home, like this is my home church, this is where I call home, this is where I plant my my life, I'm just going to ask you something very, very, very simple. Do you see this as your mission? Okay, not Pastor Sean's mission, not the elder's mission, but our mission, my mission. Do you see the importance of preaching and proclaiming and telling people about Jesus? Do you see the importance of your personal involvement in meeting the needs of each other through ministry? Do you see the importance of being a people of prayer, depending upon the power of the Lord and spiritual warfare? Do you see the need as a church family to depend upon the Lord for everything? It's your mission, not just Pastor Sean's mission or the elders' missions. It's our mission, and you're vitally a part of that. And so as we come together to celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're reminded not only of our mission, but our communion. We're united together for the mission. It's not a bunch of individuals accomplishing the mission. It's us together, united, communing together as the body on the mission. And so, as we think about the Lord's Supper, we think about the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom is that life-changing message of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that unites us all together as a church family. And so, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, here's what I want us to do today. I want us to receive afresh the good news of the gospel of the kingdom. There is a king His name's Jesus. He died, was buried, and rose again. He gives us eternal life. He gives us forgiveness of sins. He gives us a kingdom that is unshakable and will one day come and rule and reign in that final kingdom. And so as we take the Lord's Supper, let's remember our King. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper together. Jesus, you are the king of the kingdom. You're the sovereign, the ruler, and and, and the one who reigns over all. And Jesus, we're so thankful that you shed your blood on the cross, that you died for us, taking the justice that we deserved, being punished in our place, that we might be forgiven, that we might be reconciled to a holy God, that we might have the wrath removed from us so that we would have peace with God forever. 
Thank you for rising again. Lord, as we take your supper, the Lord's Supper, come to the Lord's table, help us to remember that this is not my church, this is not our church, this is your church. And as we commune together as a church family, we're also communing with you as our King. So help us to remember your death as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And as we think about the Lord's Supper, Lord, help us to understand our mission as a church. Help us to see our significant part in that mission. Help us to rely upon you every step of the way. Thank you for the Holy Spirit given to us that we might have power. So help us now as we celebrate, as we observe, as we partake of the Lord's Supper. We do this in remembrance of you, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.